church tonight. Great to see you guys. If we haven't met before, my name is Michael. Um, we're going to keep plugging away through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you, open up there um, to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be in verse 47 through 56. How many of you can think of a time uh, where you saw someone, most likely online, uh, argue? <laughs> Specifically, someone trying to defend Jesus or something like related to Christianity, like a post, maybe something that's like political or like a hot topic morally. You got something in your mind, something recent? Okay. Uh, it usually doesn't go so great. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but generally it doesn't go so great, especially around like an election season, uh, something maybe that's happened in the world that's kind of caused some uproar. It feels like if you go onto Facebook, you're just like entering into a war zone a little bit. Um, where you see someone post something and you're like, man, you seemed like a cool person and then you wrote that thing and now you're an idiot. Um, how many of you can like think of something right now? Like you just like, it popped into your head immediately from like the last three days. Raise your hand if that's you. Saw something? Nice. The last month? Raise your hand. I don't know. You guys, are you guys like me and off Facebook and not looking at that stuff? Nice. My people. Uh, Man, the defense of Jesus kind of standing up uh, in our culture, in society for what we think Jesus wants or what we think he values is a messy business, uh, especially because it seems to happen primarily in the sphere of social media where there's no tone, there's no body language or like personal backstory attempt to understand one another. It's just words and assumptions, really. Um, so what a battlefield it is. Many, many a Christian have been turned off turned away from Jesus because of the way that someone else has tried to defend him uh, or explain what they believe. Um, and yet we keep doing it, assuming maybe it's what Jesus would want us to do, stand up for him or stand up for what we think that he values as it relates to the world that we live in. Um, but what if, what if we weren't supposed to? What if there was another way or a different way? What if Jesus didn't want that for his people? Um, tonight, we have a passage of scripture that at the same time is simply advancing us through the story of the passion of Jesus, taking us one step closer to his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, but we also will see kind of a paradigm, I, I believe a paradigm, an example for Jesus's followers on how not to defend him uh, and his kingdom. Another pastor, much more, uh, smarter and more creative than I, titled his sermon on this passage, the swords we wield to defend Jesus and the ears we sever by wielding them. So just for me and just for tonight, let's pretend that I made that title up for this message. It is, I know. Go find that other guy and listen to him. Um, thanks, Kevin. Okay, so Matthew chapter 26. I'm gonna read our passage, verses 47 through 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. 
for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you teach us this evening? Would you show us something in us, in ourselves, show us something about our world, illuminate the scripture so that we can be your people, that we can become more like Jesus as a result of digging deep into your word. Ask that you would show us new things and that you would help us to obey as you show us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's dig into this text a little bit, piece by piece. Verse 47, again, while he was still speaking, this is uh, right after Jesus had been praying to his father, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours. The disciples keep falling asleep. He tells the, the disciples the third time that they had fallen asleep, he's like, the hour has come, it's time, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. And as he's saying this is when this party comes to arrest Jesus. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. And with him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Matthew makes sure to call Judas one of the 12 to just kind of twist the dagger of Judas's betrayal to remind you he once was one of the 12 disciples. You can almost hear like the quill, like scratching through the parchment as Matthew writes, like Judas, that son, that one of the 12. Ugh. So he arrives with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, it tells us, sent from the chief priests and elders. So Judas had made kind of this betrayal deal with the chief priests and the elders, and they likely sent Judas with a detachment of both kind of their underlings, like of the religious elite, and also some Roman soldiers would be the ones who had the swords. So, verse 48 and 49. The, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So the people Judas brought with him, they wouldn't have known what Jesus looked like, especially not in the dark of night in this garden. And so this kiss was to let them know who they were to arrest. But a few other things are happening. One, Judas calls him rabbi rather than what would have been customary for the disciples, what they had grown to call him, which was Lord. Um, this is kind of indicating Judas has since already kind of distanced himself from Jesus in disbelief of who he thought he was. He's also trying to seem kind of normal, maybe likely to not alert the disciples as to what's going on. So he comes in and he says, greetings, Rabbi, gives him a big hearty hug and a kiss on his cheek probably. I think the equivalent would be if we were trying to seem normal, approaching someone, be like, hey, what's up, man? Give him like a bro hug. Trying to make it seem normal, but he is um, betraying Jesus and the disciples. Verse 50, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. 
So he calls him friend. Matthew has used this word for friend a few other times, and it's not a good connotation. So the two other times where this word friend is used, um, one of them is in the parable of the vineyard where one of the workers, he's mad at the master of the vineyard for paying the other worker who started later the same wage. He's mad that he earned the same wage for more work, and the guy who started later is getting the same wage for less work. And the owner of the vineyard says, I'm not being unfair, friend. Um, We already had an agreed upon wage. The other example is in the parable of the wedding feast where the man who got into the wedding without the proper attire and the king from the parable says, friend, how did you get in here without the proper clothes? Um, So those two and then these, all three of the connotations are not, um, they're not positive and it's showing here that Judas uh, is like an associate um, who ought to be acting differently but he's called out by Jesus for being out of line. So Judas pretends like it's all normal trying to give Jesus this warm greeting and a kiss, and Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. Then the man stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So in reaction to Jesus actually being grabbed or seized to be arrested, a disciple We know from Matthew only that it's either Peter, James, or John were the ones that came this far with Jesus, um, grab their sword and swing at the head of one of the arresters and slices off his ear. Um, Matthew may be trying to kind of protect the leader and the rock of the church, Peter, as he writes this, but John outs him and tells us it was Peter who struck. John also tells us that the man he hacked was named Malchus, who is a servant of the high priest. And then Luke tells us that Jesus immediately heals his ear. But then Jesus puts a stop to the violence, verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So in this moment, Jesus decidedly does the opposite of what both the disciples and the group that that Judas brought thought was gonna happen or thought Jesus would do. The reason they came at him with swords and clubs is they still thought he was going to lead some kind of rebellion or violent uprising. And apparently Peter maybe thought that that was gonna happen too because he had at some point procured a sword to keep on his person. And so yet again, Jesus squashes this idea um, that that's how his kingdom is going to arrive is through a violent rebellion. And it's like, this is not how God's plan unfolds. Um, That statement, those who live by the sword die by the sword, in and of itself um, isn't a call like for all time to nonviolence. Jesus did say that for Christians in the Sermon on the Mount, but here it is simply Jesus kind of recognizing that violence begets more violence. Um, a Bible scholar, Michael Wilkins, says, the way of the world is to assert its will on others through human power, even violence, and the way of the world is to retaliate against violence with violence. The inevitable consequence of championing violence is often one's own violent end. Jesus is not giving a blanket endorsement of pacifism, which would require broader scriptural support than this one saying, but he does reject the notion that God's will is advanced or should be imposed on others through violent means. Verse 53, Jesus continues, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So Jesus explains to his disciples, at least primarily, and maybe those around that are listening, that if he wanted 
to put a stop to this. He could. He doesn't need Peter's sword to help him. And no number of swords or clubs in the hands of those that came there to arrest him could stop him. Jesus could have 12 legions of angels to help him. A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is saying he could get that times 12 of angels to help him. But that way, avoiding suffering and the sacrifice, um, taking the world by force is not what Jesus would do. It's not what the scriptures uh, said Jesus would do. And we remember just last, in the last passage, Jesus had just labored in agonizing prayer over whether there was another way to accomplish what he was about to do, and there wasn't. There was no other way, so he's pressing forward in it. And it says that this was to fulfill the scriptures, that it would, needed to happen this way to fulfill the scriptures, and it's one of those interesting times. It's happened a couple times in Matthew where um, Jesus talks about something being fulfilled by the scriptures, um, but doesn't point to a specific quote or a specific scripture. So most scholars think that Jesus is kind of referring to the, the general witness of the Old Testament, some ideas of the prophets, maybe primarily Isaiah, that the Messiah would be this suffering servant who would be like a lamb before slaughter who would not open his mouth or fight back in protest. And so after Jesus has corrected his disciples on attempting to use force to defend him, he turns and addresses the crowd that was there to arrest him in verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus calls out the irony of them being there kind of in the secret of night with weapons when he's been in Jerusalem day after day in broad daylight sitting among them teaching. They could have arrested him there. They could have taken him any day. I think the ESV translates this uh, verse 55 a little bit better. In the NIV it says, am I leading a rebellion? And ESV says, have you come out as against a robber or as you would as if I was a rebel? That word robber um, can be translated revolutionary or rebel. It's the same word used of Barabbas who actually did lead a violent revolt and also the two criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus. Um, but as before, Jesus reiterates, all this is going according to the plan of the scriptures, uh, which um, Again, we don't know exactly which one Jesus is referring to, but it's happening in accordance with Scripture the way that Jesus sees it, that he is not leading a revolt. He's not rebelling uh, with a military power, but is offering himself up. And then our passage ends with uh, a tragic note, one that Jesus said would happen, and the disciples flee, likely afraid of being arrested alongside Jesus, and so they run away. And so begin the final moments um, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. When I look at this passage, um, I see two things, kind of one on the surface level of the text and then one maybe a little bit deeper um, for us to kind of think about our lives today. Um, on the surface level, we have Matthew very clearly, intentionally and clearly showing us that all that's happening and, and really all that's about to happen to Jesus is happening in accordance with the scriptures and what it says about Messiah. The crowd there to arrest Jesus and his disciples are all scrambling to do their thing their way. The crowd that Judas brings takes him by force. 
and the disciples try to resist with force. But Jesus is above that noise and he sees what's happening as God's plan, the plan that fulfills scriptures. However unjust it is, however sad or frustrating it is, it's happening because Jesus is walking, excuse me, Jesus is walking the path, the road that he was meant to walk from the beginning. In the garden, when the serpent is cursed for deceiving Adam and Eve, the gospel is announced back then that a descendant of Eve would crush the serpent, but in the process, the serpent would bite his heel. So we have it on like the second or third page of your Bible. Self-sacrifice to crush Satan and deal with sin. And it's plastered all over the pages of the rest of the Old Testament. God providing a sacrifice in Isaac's place. God passing over the Israelite houses because of the blood of a sacrificial lamb. A goat being sacrificed in the middle of the tabernacle with its blood cleansing Israel from their sin. Another goat bearing the weight of those sins, having the sins cast on it and being sent out of the camp out into the wilderness, signifying their sins being carried away. We have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel promising a Messiah who would suffer, who would be killed in order to rescue and redeem and forgive God's people. This is the way. This is the cup that Jesus had asked to pass from him, but there was no other way. The crowd that Judas brought there to arrest Jesus, they think they're stopping him. They think they're stopping Jesus, but they're actually just progressing the plan that has been in place. Jesus' plan all along was not to take over a kingdom of this world, nor was it to simply restore Israel's kingdom to what it was before they were exiled and oppressed by other nations. His plan is to bring a renewed heaven and earth and his lordship as King Jesus. And this was not gonna be accomplished through a military conquest or rebellion or insurrection and violence, but through his radical self-sacrifice. It's why we'll see shortly that Jesus' crucifixion specifically is portrayed as his enthronement as king. He's given a robe and he's given a crown and there's a sign above his head that says king of the Jews and he's lifted high up in a place of honor. His crucifixion is portraying him being enthroned as a king. So the crowd that was there to arrest him thought they could stop him. And the disciples thought they could stop the stoppers from stopping Jesus. But in doing so, they were a hindrance to God's plan. The sword that they wielded to defend Jesus severed an ear. And so to step kind of below the surface of what's happening, I think that we do our own version of this today. Sometimes I think we pick up where the disciples left off and fight a battle that Jesus doesn't need us to or want us to. We wield swords to defend Jesus and sever ears in the process. I'm going to dip my toe into a topic that deserves a whole season of teachings on this. Uh, I will either confuse you or myself or maybe make you upset. Um, and so it's something that I would love to just hold, kind of suspend your, I can't believe you said that, or I wonder what he means, and, and talk to me about it. Uh, we can talk after church or we could get coffee together or something, but um, make some huge broad sweeping statements that again, you may at best disagree with or may, may frustrate you, but 
uh, Christians on both sides of our kind of current political spectrum have equally blurred the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. We feel like we have an understanding of what God values and what God wants for our world, maybe particularly our country. And we think that part of how we can make that a reality um, is through our country and its laws and our culture. So whether it's something to do with marriage or sexuality or gender, justice, um, healthcare, money, society, whatever, we think we know what God would want. We think his values are ours and that we've kind of properly like adopted his values as ours. And so we pick up a sword to defend what we think Jesus would think about our world. And we defend whether through voting or an encouragement, like you should vote and you should vote this way, or whether it's a comment on someone's Facebook post or a Facebook war where you think someone is going against Jesus and what Jesus would want. Many, many times in the process, we sever ears. We hurt people. We put a bad taste in people's mouths who maybe would one day consider Jesus. My point is this. Sometimes defending Jesus actually gets in the way of Jesus. In the same way that Peter, for a moment, got in the way of Jesus' plan to give himself up, to be arrested and crucified for our sins, I think we can get in the way of the quiet and humble and subversive ways that Jesus is at work in people's lives and the individuals around us. The social and political noise is the sound of swords slashing ears. Meanwhile, God is at work around you all the time. And maybe he wants you to lay down your weapon and partner with him to reach someone that you work with or your neighbor, not through social or political means or social or political change, but through just the beautiful and unsung work of a long friendship where you care for people and you love people. Maybe someone in your life needs uh, an in-person, face-to-face conversation with a kind and humble follower of Jesus who isn't trying to enthrone Jesus as king of this country that we live in, but is appropriately looking forward to um, Jesus' rule and reign as king of the whole universe in a new heaven and new earth. In the same way that Peter forgot Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, maybe we also forget that from time to time. We forget that the world in its present form is passing away, says Paul. We forget that Jesus will bring a new heaven and a new earth and will restore everything. We forget that after the seventh trumpet sounds, the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of God and of his anointed one, Jesus. So my, my point, I guess, my, that I want to present with as much like humility and also boldness as I could possibly hold at the same time is that God does not need us to use the sword of politics and laws and Facebook arguments to accomplish what he wants his church to do while we wait for his return. He needs us to preach the gospel and make disciples and love our neighbors and care for the poor and the sick. And I think that that should be primarily small, quiet work that the church does. And so, 
I invite you to, if you need to, to lay down your sword and live out the humble way of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I don't know how or if, if or how any of us need to set down a sword to put it away. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if, um, if it feels relatively calm right now or if things feel heated up, if our emotions are high in our social and political landscape. But you know, you know, Father, what is happening in each person's heart. You know the hurtful conversation and comments that have just popped up into people's minds, things that were said to them, things that were accused about them. You know the things that have just popped up into our minds, things that we have said, things that we used to think, things that we spouted off thinking that we were defending your honor. And so I pray for the um, sharp and tender surgical scalpel of your spirit to show us that, that you would cut us not to wound but to heal and show us where we maybe have missed the mark in this. And pray that as we do that, that we wouldn't hide from you in shame, but that we would run to our Father. And I pray that we would do that immediately and as we lift our hands and lift our voices to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.